Father, we, uh, we just come to you this morning and we, we've just declared our just utter desperate need uh, for you, Lord, and your uh, all-consuming provision for your church, Lord. Um, Father, would you help us to, to build our lives on you and not on ourselves or not any other person, Lord? We pray that you'd help us uh, to do that uh, even this morning as we hear your word. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, good morning. Can I get some lights? Thanks, Taylor. He's on it. He's on it. I should have trusted you, Taylor. I'm sorry. It's good. It's good. Um, hey, so we, if you're new here with us, we are in a series where we're going through the book of Genesis. And actually, this is uh, in some ways, uh, a terrible morning for you to visit, and in some ways, a great morning for you to visit. And the reason is, is that we believe um, that God's Word is infallible, uh, that it's trustworthy, and it's profitable, that every single word that God has written through the hands of men and, and given the Holy Spirit you know, power to transform our lives is absolutely profitable for us. And with that in mind, this is a sermon that if I'm honest with you, I don't want to preach, all right? Just being straight up with you. And the reason, uh, and you know, you'll see why I don't want to preach it, but it's exactly the reason that I need to preach it. Amen? It's those things that we don't want to hear that we actually need to hear the most. Uh, Our text today deals uh, with a very sensitive subject, uh, namely sexual abuse, and the shrapnel that follows an incident in the scriptures. And I I think my hesitancy in being willing to preach this is similar to the feeling that surrounds victims of abuse. And that's why we must preach it this morning. That's why we must hear it. Um, We must preach it because we must know that the power of God through the gospel can even bring hope in those dark places of our lives. We have a God that can meet us there. But before I get into this, I want to give any of you, whether you're parents of children that are in here this morning, or something within your own story makes you uncomfortable, I want to give you permission to at any time this morning to step outside. Um, I have no intentions of stirring up anything painful in you, and my only ambition is to be God's servant by proclaiming his word this morning. And as a parent, you might know, uh, you know, let me just say this, you know what's best for your children's heart. Uh, and I encourage you to use discernment uh, as, that, as, uh, as a parent this morning in that. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray for us and just want you to know that you've got the out at any point this morning as we, as we dig into this. So let's pray and ask the Spirit to meet us here. Uh, Lord, we trust you uh, with our lives and with our hearts. And Father, we trust that Jesus, uh, through his spirit that he's left us with, has the power to touch our deepest wounds and to help us move through those in the power of his name. And so, Father, we pray that you'd meet us as a congregation. We pray that you would meet us as those who know people who have been in this place, um, that the enemy leaves no stone unturned in how uh, how he tries to destroy this world. And this place is the most hidden out of all the places. And we need your light, we need your hope, we need your gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I once had a guy uh, confront me, this is probably 12 years ago or so, and he said, uh, he said something like this. He said, sin uh, hits everyone's life uh, in pervasive ways. And, he, and then he goes on to say something that made me uncomfortable. He says, to some degree or another, it hits everyone uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a way uh, through sexual brokenness. Whether they want to admit it or not, that has to be acknowledged to be able to move into the freedom that God has designed for us in, in Christ. Now, I didn't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that this morning. But let me just say this. In my experience, it is more true than not. Some of you may be very aware of how sin has wreaked havoc in and attempted to capture this part of your life. It could be as a victim of a childhood crime. It could be through a sexually promiscuous lifestyle when you were younger that haunts you today. It could be through premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, many other things. But you now understand and believe what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, that sexual sin has a different effect on our lives than any other sin. Just what he writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, and so if we think that this fallen condition of mankind does not and will not touch this part of our stories, we're probably mistaken and maybe in denial. I want you to know that whether you're walking in the light with this this morning, you're still in the darkness, or maybe you're somewhere in between, or maybe it's not even that big of a part of your story. I want you to know this this morning, and it's our big idea. The grace of Jesus has power to bring healing to sexual brokenness because he has borne both the burden of sin committed against us and even our sinful responses to it. The power of sexual abuse and really even sexual sin in general over our lives is typically a shame-filled, dark, and isolated pursuit that most of us have no one to walk through with us in that journey. And the problem with that is that, that James chapter 5 teaches that healing comes through confession of these things in community with others. And so here's our outline today as we dig into this and read the text. Uh, it's, it's really, um, it, let me just say this from the get-go. In this chapter, there's almost nothing commendable about this chapter of Scripture. The, the only thing that I can find commendable about this chapter of Scripture is that Levi and Simeon want to take up for their sister. That's the only thing. Not how they do it and not what follows. But So let me just say that. Our outline is this, is that there's, there's a horror, there's a haunting nature around sexual sin. The second thing is this. There's a wound that follows that. And the third thing is this, is that there is hope for healing. Let's dig in together. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want you to invite you to Genesis chapter 34. We're going to be looking at the first four verses on this point. Let me give you a little context if you're new. Um, what happened before this? Context is king, right? Jacob and Esau are these two brothers, uh, sons of Isaac. They had this bitter relationship that was full of deceit, full of hate. And they had this miraculous thing happen that we talked about last week. They actually reconciled with one another. They were on good terms for the first time in at least 20 years, maybe the first time in their life. But the thing I didn't get to uh, that is actually a really important thing is that Jacob lied about where he was going after he and Esau parted ways. And, and, I, and I'll just note this. It's one thing to take the prodigal out of the far country. It's a completely different thing to get the prodigal out of the sun, isn't it? 
And, and we notice that with Jacob, that as much as we want to believe that his conversion when he wrestles with God, like cures him of all sin, like it just doesn't. It keeps showing up and it gives me comfort when sin keeps showing up in my life. And so what we see in his life is that in Genesis 28, when God met Jacob when he was on the run because he had deceived his brother, he was running to Uncle Laban's house and, and Paddan Aram, yet, yet he made this vow that he was going to return to Bethel after he'd met God, which is, you know, in the promised land. And it's one that God will actually remind him of in Genesis 35.1 that he made that vow. But Jacob has other plans after, after he's reconciled with God, reconciling with his brother. He decided to, to, to kind of diso disobey God, deceive his brother, and set up camp just outside of this pagan city called Shechem. Um, maybe it was a more prosperous city. Maybe there's better opportunity. Maybe it was an easier go for him. Maybe they were just also tired. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that it was disobedient, and the consequences uh, are very severe. In some part, what follows in Genesis chapter 34 this morning is a result of Jacob's disobedience. Jacob is pretty responsible for everything that follows in Genesis 34 because of his failure to lead the way that God called him to lead. He leads his family to the wrong place on, on purpose, and we just see that his deceiving nature is still just kind of surfacing. So let's read first four verses, very direct here. Now, Dinah, who was the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land in the city of Shechem, where dad had set them up. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and humiliated her. You know what that means. I don't have to go into detail. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, Dinah, she's the only daughter of Jacob from the wife that he merely tolerated, Leah. You can go back and read the story about that. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But what you need to know about Dinah is this, is that she's probably a teenager. She's probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. And she's just landed in a new town in a, in a house full of testosterone, right? I mean, she's got, she's got 10 older brothers and she'll have a younger brother named Benjamin. Um, who hasn't been born yet, and, uh, and, and the, the, the testosterone's just off the, off the charts, and the scripture says that she goes out alone into the city of Shechem, and, and I've heard people explain this passage before in a way that goes like this, um, that this is Dinah's fault, she shouldn't have left home, she shouldn't have left the camp, and I think that is a gross manipulation of this text. We're not told that Dinah disobeyed her father or her mother in any way, um, we're simply told that she wants to go out for a night on the town to see what the girls of the land of Shechem are like. Maybe she's interested in seeing, you know, what kind of clothing styles are in, you know, what would it look like to fit in in a city like Shechem? That's what we're told about her. But what we know is this, she didn't really have any companionship in the home. She definitely didn't have a father she can trust. And she's got a mother that's overlooked constantly by her father. So what we, what we do know about the city of Shechem is that there's a predator on the loose. And he just happens to be the second most powerful man in town, one whom the city is named after. Shechem is the prince of the land. Um, I'm not going to read any more into this uh, pagan character, Shechem, uh, into his character, other than to say 
The way that this encounter is described is forceful and it's graphic and it's so awful and it seems like he's got experience in this. It seems like maybe this isn't the first time this happened before. And there's a pattern of verbs in this passage that shows a reversal of God's design for intimacy that I want to point out to you this morning. Because we need to see God's design for intimacy to fully see what's happened here. I think that the church in general, um, we have an incredible um, uh, sense of, of just being uncomfortable talking about intimacy in a positive way. Uh, because we are so painfully wounded in sin and living in darkness for the most part, I think. And so what happens is, is typically the church talks about sexual intimacy in a way that starts with the fall first. You shouldn't do that. How could you do that? And it's, it's filled with this shame-filled pursuit, especially when we're talking to our children. It's not, it, we start with the Genesis 3 approach to looking at intimacy instead of a Genesis 2 approach. Are you guys tracking with me? You see the difference here. Because there's a, there's a pursuit of intimacy that God has designed that's incredibly spiritual. And the physical that follows the spiritual is, 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 um, is given to mirror the intimacy that God designs to have with us, desires to have with us. And I think so many times we don't do this. We, but we want to, as a church, start with where the Bible starts talking about intimacy, Right? So let me, let me tell you a little bit about God's design for intimacy. If you've got a Bible, flip, flip back to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to know that what, what you notice in this, in this passage just before it is that man is made in God's image to have a spiritual intimacy with God, a companionship with him. And God gives, God gives a mate to Adam, a helpmate, the scriptures say, to express that spiritual intimacy, and to even express it in the fruit of physical intimacy. He gives it as this gift to Adam and to Eve. So listen to what the scriptures say. Scriptures say, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed." The spiritual connection and companionship church is this gift from God. He sees the need that Adam has before Adam ever expresses it. He says, he sees that he's alone and it's not good. And he gives marriage to him as this gift that is then expressed through physical connection that leads, uh, that leads to exposure and delight, not to shame, but to vulnerability and acceptance in the context of this marriage. The verbs that we see at play here, what are they? Leave, leave his father and mother, hold fast. It's based on this spiritual design and gift and become one flesh and to see one another without shame. Take note of those verbs, those phrases there, the actions that are happening. Yet here's what I know about us in this room. This is the farthest thing from what most people have experienced in their life. Couldn't be any more different. And the temptation is to just leave it there, to think that it'll go away, or to think that that doesn't affect your relationship with God who designed it. And it's all a lie. Here, let me show you how Satan distorts intimacy. It, it really starts with this pattern that we see about how Satan works in the world. Um, so let me show you how he distorts in general and how he twists in general, and then we're going to see it play out in the story of Jacob and Shechem and Dinah, Okay. So if you've got a Bible, flip one more page over to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7. 
So we got God's design, and then the enemy surfaces on the scene. And scriptures say this, the serpent, who is the devil in the form of a snake, right, said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit that you're, that's forbidden, that your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, key words, listen to them. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Satan's order, church, is the exact opposite of God's order. It starts with the physical, then it moves to the spiritual, right? Satan says, look, you can be like God, which is a, a false spiritual promise attained through physical means. He works through the eyes, not through the spirit. So what did she do? She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. But the order was that God made man to lead and to be discerning, right? And we don't hear a peep from Adam. He's silent. The story in Genesis 34, we don't hear a peep from dad. We don't hear a peep from Jacob. He's silent. We'll hear from him in a minute, and it's a pathetically selfish remark that he makes. So what we have is Dinah, who is essentially fatherless in a foreign land, and Shechem then goes to act just like Satan, the god of this world. Listen to it again. When Shechem... The son of Hamar, the Hivite, this is 34-2, the prince of the land, it's key that he's showing all of the kind of the power moves there, right? The relationship that he has. Saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. What are the verbs? See, take, lay, an attempt to love and find soul connection. Do you see the reversal of this? Look at this right here. Let me just, let me parallel them for you. God's design for intimacy is that we would be called to leave and to hold fast, right? To another person in this world as an expression of the spiritual intimacy that we have with our Father in heaven. Marriage is all about God. Then there's the physical that follows become one. And then the implications of the physical and the spiritual connection is that, that we see one another and we're not ashamed. And that God sees us and we're not ashamed. But Satan's distortion of intimacy is first to see the lust of the eyes right and then to take, lay, humiliate. There's, there's no mutual agreement here, right? And then to attempt to love and to connect. Do you see the sick reversal of how sin works through sexual sin? Do you see it, church? This is how he's been working. It's not just sexual sin. It's all sin. Satan twist, twisted most people's stories in such a way, even in this room, where we're not even sure that a Genesis 2 intimacy is even possible. We're terrified to trust another person this way. And Satan is having an absolute heyday in our hearts. And he tells us we're the only ones and we have to hide. One of the deepest gifts that God gives to mirror the type of intimacy that he has designed for us is the deepest place of isolation and shame for most of us. 
And here's the hardest part of all. The enemy convinces us that this has no bearing on our relationship with our Father in heaven. I'm not standing up here this morning and just saying, hey, premarital sex is bad. Don't do that. I'm saying God's design is so good that the church has to redeem it. We have to redeem it. If you've never seen the connection between the spiritual and the physical and intimacy, you've never seen the gift that God has for us. I'm not saying that's just for married people. There's a connection in your singleness too, this vulnerability and transparency with God and others. Satan always desires to twist and distort the order of intimacy. But what you need to know is this, is that godly intimacy um, never begins with physical intimacy. It just doesn't. Physical intimacy is always a fruit of spiritual intimacy. No matter how that statement hits you this morning, I want you to know that it's possible to receive grace in your life today. It's possible for God to redeem even that part of your story. So no matter how sexual sin has surfaced in your story, I just want you to know that I'm sorry. I know that where you're at is dark and it's scary and it seems hopeless that there is a wound that follows that that seems like it'll never be healed. I want you to know that Jesus can meet us even there, church. Let's look a little bit more at this story here in Genesis 34. Explore a little bit more of this wound. Scriptures say this in verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now that word peace has nothing to do with what you think about when we think peace, shalom, holistic flourishing. It means that he chose to be deaf. That, that he chose not to hear, that he chose to be silent. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. You know, Shechem's hiding behind dad, right? He's blown it big time. Dad's got a cover for him, right? And the sons of Jacob come in from the field at this time, and as soon as they hear it, they are indignant. They are furious with what's happened because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Buddy, that ship has sailed, right? That's what I'm thinking when I read this. Please give her to him to be his wife. There's no acknowledgement of the violation that's happened. He says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. Exchanging property, right? Like there's no spiritual emphasis on it. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, to Jacob and the boys, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask me for a, a great bride price and a gift as you, as you will, and I'll give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to marry and be my wife. Jacob, completely silent the sons of Jacob, indignant. This is the proper response in the situation, isn't it? I mean, Shechem is daddy's boy, and Hamor, Hamar has the audacity to come up to Jacob, who's supposedly God's chosen man, and his sons, and start bargaining with them about how to secure Dinah as Shechem's wife. 
And it's clear and it's so sad that Dinah means nothing to Jacob. Not only has Shechem sexually violated this woman, he's also kidnapped her. Where is she at in the scene? She's still in his house. Jacob's just standing there. Where is Jacob? What is he doing? What Jacob says at the end of this thing, listen to how this guy's in a terrible, listen to what happens, verses 30 and 31. This is after the boys take matters into their own hands, right? They stand up for, for little sis and they do it their own way. Listen to what happens. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, now these are, these are Dinah's full-blooded brothers, not her half-brothers. Remember, there's the kind of blended family here. His response, he has the audacity to say this. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, but should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob finally speaks. But he literally says almost every word about himself. You see it. There are eight pronouns in two verses. I'm not a real smart guy, but if this isn't a description of a narcissist, I don't know what is, right? Eight pronouns about himself in two verses. It's the only time he speaks in Genesis 34. It makes me sick to my stomach to read this passage. The worst thing imaginable has happened to Dinah a violation that will affect her for the rest of her life and her relationship to others for the rest of her life, even with God's grace covering it, right? It doesn't go away. And her super spiritual father has nothing to say. There's no covering of her vulnerability. There's no advocacy. There's no rescue. There's no care. This is a lot of people's experience after a crime like this is committed against them. And it's no wonder that the wound buried within cuts so deep and lasts for so long. And what hurts me even more is to know that some of you in this room have had a similar experience. Statistically, I know it's true. You've been abused. Maybe, maybe someone, you, maybe you spoke up and, and someone didn't believe you or you were ignored or told to keep quiet. Maybe you're scared to say anything about it. Maybe you're carrying it all alone, and I just want you to know that my heart aches for you. And I want you to know that you don't have to be alone in this. The only way to find hope in that wound is to be known by God in those places. That was the design of Genesis 2, naked and unashamed. I was speaking with a counselor this week that was able to give me some kind of critical insight about this. I, I just told him, man, I just... I just want to, I want to be God's man this week, but I don't know how to handle this. And he says, listen, man, the victim needs to hear it's not your fault you were abused. But they also need to hear that there is a tendency where abused people tend to sin by pulling away from God. And that's a problem because he's where the healing comes from, right? So we pull away from God and he's the very source of the healing balm that we need. There's a great book. If this, is, if this is something that you were just wrestling with this morning, there's a great book called The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender uh, that you need to check out. I want to read a quote 
uh, about it for you this morning. He says this, ultimately the enemy is the prowling beast that attempts to devour and to destroy the beauty of God's kingdom. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. The enemy is sin, that fallen, which is that fallen autonomous striving for life that refuses to bow to God. The enemy is the internal reality that will not cry out to God in humble, broken dependence. And it's the victim's subtle or blatant determination to make life work on his or her own by refusing to acknowledge or let God fulfill his or her deepest longings. The enemy is actually the same for the abused person as it is for those who have not not been sexually abused, which is a determined, reliable inclination to pursue false gods, which are to find a life apart from this dynamic, moment-by-moment relationship with the Lord of life. For the abused person, however, the past grievous violation of trust and intimacy even more dramatically inflames his or her determination to live without the pain of those unmet longings and thus without the raging thirst of a soul that pants for God alone. Do you see how the enemy twists this, keeps us in darkness? He can work in such a way that victims of abuse never experience a degree of freedom because we focus on hating a person or hating a type of person or hiding from intimacy. Instead of acknowledging a wholehearted approach toward the abuse by trusting Jesus in those places to heal us. Allender says it's completely possible to live your whole life with a sinful response to abuse and thus to allow the enemy to keep you doubly captive. That's the hardest part of this whole thing for me, is to sit with you in the middle of that, but to also encourage you to let Jesus deal with them instead of you deal with them. That's the hardest part of the whole thing. Jacob sacrifices Dinah in his own pursuits. He complains at the slightest infliction of sacrifice he might have to endure on his family's behalf. But I want you to know that God is so different than Jacob, especially in this. God will work in his life, but God's so different than this scene. What's God done? God sees, God acts, God gave up his son, his one and only son, who was perfect. He gave him up, church, to be violated and abused on our behalf so that we can be certain that we are known and even seen in those terribly dark places. Jesus loves victims of abuse so much that he became one. Think about that. The Lord of life became that so that we could know that we're not alone and that he has power even over that. And I want to I tread lightly here, but I, but I have to mention something. It's part of my own story too that I'll share with you. Jesus's victory is so incredibly mighty over sin that not only is there grace for the victim, but there's even grace for the abuser. I have a family member, he's a pretty close family member, that has been in prison probably all but about five years of my life. His story is so awful. Uh, He was violated as a child by someone that should have protected him, someone that the Lord entrusted to his care. 
And then he became a man. And he turned around and did the same thing and repeated the offense again. I only have memories, for the most part, of Sunday afternoons having phone calls from the various prisons that he would be in. One of those Sunday afternoon conversations, probably 12 to 15 years ago, maybe a little longer, um, where he wanted to talk with my mom and I uh, about more than the Dallas Cowboys, which is what we usually talked about because they were so bad. But um, he told us that he heard the gospel and that he had become a Christian. And kind of my, if I'm honest with you, my knee-jerk reaction was, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. There ain't no way. Mm-mm. You don't get off like that. Mm-mm. The reality is, is that he really has become a believer. Isn't it so hard to believe that God can forgive people who sin so terribly? So hard, isn't it? It doesn't take away the wound, but I want you to know that there's even grace for those people. It doesn't change the consequences of sin. His conversion did not lead to his release from prison. It doesn't, minify, it doesn't minimize the offense that occurred and the shrapnel that follows and the stories of the people that were violated, but it does change his hope. And we will see that change as incremental as it, as it is in Jacob's life as well. Let's finish the, the passage as we talk about a hope for healing here in verses 13 through 31. Church, the best that worldly hope can give us is revenge. It's the best. It's, the, it's as good as it gets. It's just revenge. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? We live in this instant culture and it's why Christians are so disappointed when they're not instantly sanctified, right? And it's why we want instant judgment on people that hurt us. We want them to be canceled. We want to be cut off. Thanks be to God that he's different. It's not a problem to express the wound of sin inflicted upon us or the wound that we carry because of our sin. But it does become a problem when we take matters into our own hands. Jacob is silent with Dinah's wound, but her brothers are not. Listen to what happens here. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. They said to him, we can't do this thing to, to give our sister, you know, for whatever price to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it um, 
For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. Every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Just let us agree with them and they'll dwell with us. Do you notice the language of the two kind of becoming one flesh and the, the intermingling of nations and kind of what's happening here? And there's just this natural blindedness to physical intimacy above all. And it just trickles down. And Simeon and Levi read straight through it, don't they? And so what happens, they all went out of the gate of the city, listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised and all went out of the gate of his city. So Shechem is so blinded by desire that he forgets what he's done. It's like, of course she wants to be with me, right? Why wouldn't she? She's kidnapped in his house. But Simeon and Levi, they have not forgotten. So they take out revenge under the guise of spirituality. So the sign of circumcision is what is a sign of the covenant of our relationship with the one true God based on his grace alone. That's what it's a, it's a sign of. It's, it's of God's one-way grace on them as a nation. You know, the cutting away of flesh, not to get too graphic, for the pursuit of purity as God's people. It's a sign of what God, do, God will do for them as a nation and will ultimately do in their hearts spiritually. He will purify them. He will cut away the impurity and forgive it. But the other interesting thing about this passage is that the, this violation of Dinah leads the sons of Jacob to declare their identity as a nation for the very first time. Look in the scriptures. This is the very first time in all of the scriptures that Israel is described as a people of God and not just Jacob's name. First time that it happens right here, they identify with the one true God, we are Israel. So they say, follow our God and we'll, make, we'll cut you in on the deal, right? We can be joined at the hip with this pagan nation when God has called us to be pure. So every single man is circumcised. Every single warrior has undergone surgery. And then what happens next is almost like one of those movie scenes where you're like, man, finally the punishment fits the crime, right? I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, sometimes I think that way. It's bad. Listen, on the third day, when they were sore, not to get too graphic, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, they're Dinah's actual blood brothers, take their swords and they come across against the entire city. And listen to this, while it felt secure, and they killed every single man. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword. And they took Dinah. They rescued her out of the house and they went away. And the sons of Jacob, all the other brothers, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks. They took their herds. They took their donkeys. They took whatever was in the city and in the field. They took all their wealth. They took all their kids. They took all their wives. They took everything. They became what they hated because they chose to revenge. They chose revenge in their own power. This, this is a, this, this, I told you there's not much here. It's commendable, if anything. It's a picture of the depravity that's possible in all of our hearts. 
This is possible inside of each and every one of us, if not for the Holy Spirit's governing power of grace in our lives. Levi and Simeon, who are these guys? You remember how Leah was working out her own junk when she married this Jacob guy who didn't even want to marry her. She's having these kids. God opens her womb. He doesn't open Rachel's womb. You remember what Levi's name means? She she named her sons based kind of on her sanctification struggle at the time, right? Levi's name means this. Now this time, maybe my husband will be attached to me. Jacob, the shrapnel that follows his sin. Simeon, the Lord heard that I'm hated, is what his name means. Dinah, you know what it means? Judged and vindicated. If that's not a prophecy, I don't know what is. Every single time someone calls them by their name, they're reminded of their mother's struggle to be known by her husband. The sons of Jacob chose vengeance Jacob chooses silence and neither brings healing or hope. They plunder and enslave the entire city and they end up doing the very thing that they hate in their sin. Friends, vengeance will never bring the hope it promises. Silence will never bring the hope that it suggests. We need Jesus to speak into our wounds. He's the only one that can care for us, cover us, and lead us to hope. The only way, friends, that we can ever learn to trust others with intimacy again is to trust Christ first. And it is the thing that is so hard for us to do. God, he is a better father than Jacob. Amen? He defends the defenseless. He executes justice on their behalf of the oppressed. He sees and he hears. And his judgment is full and it's final. Jesus Jesus is a better big brother than Levi and Simeon. He's a better big brother to the Dinahs of this world because he himself has borne the sin of the world, even sexual sin, through his cross and his resurrection. And his judgment covers repentant sinners and it slays the unrepentant wicked of this world, church. Jesus doesn't need us to do any of that for him only to trust him enough to let him apply the healing balm of the gospel even to the stained parts of our stories. However God is speaking to you this morning, my question to you is this, will you trust Jesus with your wound? Maybe you need to trust Jesus with something that happened in your story instead of bearing the burden alone. Maybe you need to go back and open that wound that you sutured up on your own, just enough to invite the Spirit in with you. At this church, I want you to know that if you are in a place where you need to talk to someone, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but we don't want to get in your way if God is opening something that needs to be explored. Just from a details perspective, I know this is a really heavy sermon. Our, our approach to you this morning is we want to be as helpful as we possibly can in this. Um, if you have the need to talk to someone with where you're at this morning or this week or this month um, that you can trust after hearing this message, 
Pastor Brandon would love to help you navigate through that, or Kelly Shipp, who is our children's director, but also a, a trained counselor. They would love to help you just explore what needs to happen next, to just kind of be a, a, trusted, a trusted ear that you could trust with your vulnerability and your confidenti- and, and confidentiality. And we'd love to, to just, just help you explore that so that you could have the possibility of freedom even in that part of your life. I want us to pray together this morning. Pray that we would be the kind of people that trust Jesus with our deepest wounds. Let's pray. Father, uh, uh, Lord, I am uh, incredibly grateful that you are a father to the fatherless. God, the gaping wound that many of us in this room feel this morning that's just kind of been opened up. God, we, we need to know what to do with it. Father, many of us in this room are even terrified to think about letting light into that place that we closed up maybe so long ago. Father, I pray that no matter where we're at this morning on our journey toward you, Maybe it's the thing that's kept us from you. Maybe we're, not, we're in here, we're not believers because of what's happened. And to trust you in that place is to trust you at all, and we're terrified of that. Father, wherever we are at this morning, Lord, would you speak into our, the darkness of our hearts? And Father, will you meet us in that place this morning? And would you give us the courage to move toward the light and out of the darkness. And we pray that all through the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.